This is Salt and Spine. The best cookbooks are the ones that really just like touch me. They get at me and they are speaking to me on a deeper level because I'm seeing myself in them. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Jake Cohen. You might recognize Jake from any number of social media platforms, where he regularly creates viral recipes and food content. A native New Yorker, Jake started his career post-culinary school at some of Manhattan's most revered restaurants, namely Daniel and ABC Kitchen, before he made the jump to food media. Traversing his way through the offices of outlets like Savour and Tasting Table, Jake rose in the ranks and became known for his inventive recipes. And now he's here with his first cookbook, his debut, titled Jew-ish, that's Jew-ish, Reinvented Recipes from a Modern Mensch. It's an exploration of Jewish food, often with innovative twists, ranging from a recipe for the perfect challah to dishes like matzah tiramisu. Jake joined us remotely in the Salt and Spine virtual studio for today's show. Stick around, it's a really great conversation. And of course, we're ending it with a culinary game. So let's head now to our virtual studio where Jake Cohen joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Jake. How are you? Good. Great to be here. It's a snowy day in New York. Sorry to hear that. I know you're dealing with cold and snow, um, but we're thrilled to have you on Salt and Spine and to talk about your cookbook, Jewish. But we always like to start just by talking a little bit more about you and your relationship to food and your career before we talk about the book more specifically. So you did you grow up in New York? Am I getting that right? I did. I grew up in Queens. You grew up in Queens. Okay. Um, And can you talk a little bit about the role that food played in your life when you were growing up? I know you make a few references to family, well, many references to family members in your cookbook, but a few that I I noted in particular, your grandma Annie, I know your aunt Susie in particular. So can you tell us about food for you as you were growing up and what that meant? Yeah. I mean, I think family's always been very important to me and I grew up in the city where all of my family was in the city, the majority of my family, at least. So uh-huh. while it, like, it wasn't so much about food around the, the every night, it wasn't like weeknight meals or, or the, these like special dinners as a family, like they, they happened, but more so it was the rituals around the holidays. And as Jews, we have just so many. Um, <laughs> so those are these kind of really awesome opportunities to gather with my family and, and cook and not cook, I wasn't cooking, but at least eat and be around family members who were cooking and kind of extending love through hospitality, which was always so great to see. I mean, obviously, with that hospitality came a lot of guilt, a lot of stress, a lot of complaining, but that that's neither here nor there. Yeah, typical family dynamics. So you, you said you weren't cooking. At what age did you start to become interested in food? Did you start to cook? How did that process go for you? Yeah, so it was in high school. And okay. I was just like obsessed with the Food Network. I would come home from school every day and and turn it on and watch it while I did my homework. And I was just completely enamored with the kind of spectacle that it was. And I started printing out recipes and cooking. And then eventually that led to like having some friends over and throwing these like little amateur dinner parties that were very amateur. Um, Uh And I think that's when it really kind of got to that point of like, this is, this is it. This is what I have to pursue deeper than just a hobby. Sure. So in high school, you sort of had a realization that that was going to be a career path for you, right? Oh, yeah. And I went all in. I, I like I applied to the Culinary Institute of America. It was the only college I applied to. No backup plan. Just that <laughs> I just made I made a choice. 
Yeah. And, and you got in and you, you went to the Culinary Institute of America and then after graduating, you went right into working at restaurants. Yeah. Yes. Um, so one of the things that while you're at CIA, you have to take off a huge chunk of time in between your first and your second year to go work in a restaurant. During that time, I worked at Danielle in the city, which was insane. Three Michelin star craziness, everything that you would expect out of, out of all of the movie interpretations of what it's like to, to work in a fine dining restaurant. It was that. Um, and it beat the hell out of me, both physically, emotionally, all of it. But it was, it was incredible in terms of a learning experience. When I graduated, I went straight to working at ABC kitchen under Dan Kluger, um, which was incredible. I, I think he's one of the most brilliant chefs ever. And just the way he thinks of food has influenced me so deeply. And I think at ABC is when I really got to just understand that I didn't want to own a restaurant at the end. I didn't want to be an executive chef of a restaurant in New York. And I think as soon as I realized that, I was like, all right, what's next? I had to get out immediately because I I wasn't going to waste my body because it is so, so taxing on you physically um, working the line. So from there, I kind of just made the jump to media. I started working at Sever doing recipe testing and was there for a few years, hopped around to Tasting Table as their food editor, was a food critic for Time Out New York for a hot second, which was fun. And then my last job was um, the editorial director of the Feed Feed. Awesome. And now you're you're here with your cookbook titled Aptly Jew-ish. And for folks who haven't seen the cover yet, right, there's a, there's a hyphen there, Jew-ish. Yeah. Can you talk about the term Jew-ish? You write about this a little bit in the introduction and, and what that term means to you with the emphasis on the ish in particular. Yeah, so I think it, it's a real kind of just play. I'm, I, I really don't take myself very seriously. And I think I like to have yeah. a lot of fun with myself, with food, with everything. Um, and I think there's an amazing source of humor in, in all I do. And the title is a play on secular Jews in America who often will refer to themselves as Jew-ish. Um, uh-huh. And I think that we're in this time now where we're seeing media really use ish a lot for this kind of, just, I would say it's a, it's a denotation of either multicultural blending or assimilation into American culture with immigrant culture, so many different kind of combinations but that's it's it's all with a niche um and we have it built into jewish already so right it was a a no-brainer for for secular jews in my introduction though i think the funny thing is is that this book is jewish i am not jewish i think i'm making this argument that jewish identity doesn't have to be dictated by someone else uh i think so much of this book was this journey to deeper understanding of my own personal identity and my connection to Judaism. And I think the second I really started breaking down what are the rituals, why do we do them, what am I getting out of them, keeping the things that I find add so much value and and preserving recipes and traditions from generations before me and taking out the things that do not work for my life as a young 20-something gay man in New York City all of a sudden I realized, actually, I am so proud to be Jewish. I'm so proud to have this kind of set of rituals and traditions that I want to have in my life. I want to have with my husband. I want to have with my family that, I, I mean, I, I, I think at the end of the day, this book is heartfelt. This book is um, hopefully something that so many other Jews will relate to in one way or another who've ever struggled with identity. But the most important part is, is it's, mine. It's my 
interpretation of my identity. And I, I think it's, it's something that's so personal and the concept of writing a cookbook in today's world and having to represent a culture. I've never really liked that because I can't represent Jewish food. I, sure. I, I, am, I can only represent Jewish food through the lens of my experience. And I want to do that to the best of my ability and preserve recipes for my family. That being said, a lot of people will see the way that my grandmother makes brisket and they're going to say, that's not the right way. My grandmother does it differently because every family is going to have a variation and there's room for everyone at the table. I, I just think that's the beauty of it. Yeah. And you really sort of grapple with that in, in the early pages of your cookbook, both your connection to your Jewish identity and also your connection to being queer. And you write that you felt this is an interesting line to me. You say you felt more connected to your queerness as a young person than you did to your Jewishness. And you sort of contrast those identities a little bit and the sense of pride. And and I think really interestingly, talk about you and your now husband's sort of exploration of your relationship to practicing, to going to synagogue and how that sort of evolved and how it really sort of ultimately centered around food, right? Yeah, uh, I think that it's as simple as the way that the world around us is it dictates value. I think in in even a professional setting like New York, it's acceptable to be very queer, especially in 2021. Obviously, again, sure. I'm not talking about the world as a whole. I'm not talking about this country as a whole. There are still huge issues with homophobia in the same way that there are huge issues with anti-Semitism. But right. in a metropolitan area, for a average person, it is part of their identity, and it's something that's celebrated at the workplace. I have never felt that same aspect with Judaism, personally in my life. And I think that so much of it has been about Unlike with queerness, you like it is who I am. It's how I was born. This is this is it. And I was born a Jew, but I can compartmentalize a lot of aspects of Judaism separate from my identity. And with that, I think that there's just this natural deviation from from tradition and from I, I guess just owning it on a daily basis. You're Jewish when you're at home with your family for the holidays, but are you Jewish at, at work? Are you Jewish when you're with your friends? Are you Jewish on social media? These are right. all things in, in which, like, I guess I, I slowly started to realize that I, I didn't have to separate it. There's no need to separate it. It's all great. It's all wonderful. It should all be celebrated. And yeah. I, I think from there, in the, the conversation with my husband, it's so much of this book is because we are two secular Jews that came at it with the one thing that typically connects Jewish people is the cultural aspect of food. And what happens wow. when you have two Jews who have completely different definitions of what Jewish food is? When we met, he didn't know what babka was. He'd never heard of it. I, I, I will never forget one of the first months we were dating. I was sick. I had like the flu and I was, it was just so terrible. I'm in bed. He's like, what can I get for you? I'm like, I need matzo ball soup. And uh -huh. he was just like, where do I, where do I get matzo ball? Where do I order our matzo ball soup? Where should I get it? It was, it was just like, it was not as ingrained in his, upbringing and, and life. And in the same way, I had no idea what kubba was. I never had tadik before. I never had any of the dishes that were so integral to the same rituals. Shabbat, Passover, Rosh Hashanah, all of these things. We celebrate all of them just with completely different menus. And I think that offered this really fascinating adventure to explore both of our cultures while we were figuring out what that meant for us as a couple, for us as Jews, for us as everything. 
Yeah. You alluded to this a little bit, but you also wrote in the introduction that you said for some reason you teared up every time you tried to write the introduction. And you mentioned a little bit like that this book is very much, it's yours, right? It's your interpretation of recipes and foods and practices and culture. And that there's sort of this idea of something needing to represent an entire cuisine, right? An entire foods of, of Jewish diaspora. Was that like a pressure you felt? Or can you talk more about why this felt sort of so emotional to to put your book and your recipes out into the world in this way? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it was a pressure. I think, okay. and even still, I don't think there's pressure for me to represent Jewish food as whole, because I, I make that very clear to everyone in the right. same way that I, I, I think that if I was to feel that pressure, I would probably not be so candid with the fact that I'm not kosher and that I still use my phone on Shabbat and all of these things that are so technically wrong, but for me are part of how I celebrate. And that's what works for me. And I think a key part of why I get emotional is because every recipe is not just a recipe. I hate a cookbook that's just like a bunch of yummy recipes. That's great. That's what the internet is for, for me these days. For me, what a cookbook does is it's a level deeper. I am getting cookbooks for the anecdotes. I'm getting cookbooks for the voice, the stories behind it. The best cookbooks are the ones that really just like touch me. They, they, They get at me and they are speaking to me on a deeper level because I'm seeing myself in them, uh, in, in the writer. I'm seeing myself or my family in the characters that are told in these stories. That is what drives me to a deeper connection to a book, to want to make the recipes, to want to scream it from the rooftops that everyone needs to buy it. And I just felt this, this, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to have this immense privilege to write a book, I needed it to be exactly how I envisioned it. And how I envision it is a love story, a family tree, a, a, a book that has not just these two sentence head notes, but actually an anecdote tied to my family, my relationship, my life for every single recipe down to down to just like a side dish. Like to me, uh-huh. that, that is where the, the head note for the pickle juice braised cabbage, like it's a story. It's about the journey of how I figured them out. And I'm not gonna lie, each one of these recipes were developed and tested at a Shabbat dinner I hosted. So Every single thing is a memory, even if it wasn't something that was so rooted in in family tradition. There are recipes that come from my family, the recipes that come from my husband's family. There are also recipes that I just came up with. And it's not that they're just special recipes. They're recipes that are then tied to our experience in hosting Shabbat, our experience in making friends, our experience in in spending time as a family and growing as a couple. So it just, it, it, it's very emotional. I do a lot of crying throughout this whole process. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Cookbook writing in general is a very emotional thing. And and now I think obviously you're in another emotional phase of actually <laughs> receiving the finished product. Like it's done. Yeah. It's here. I, I saw your, your TikTok of uh, bringing the first copy to your mother too. And it's just, I'm sure emotional to share this work now with your family. Yeah. I mean, they're all very, 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 very supportive. And my mom, like I, I, she is, I talk about this all the time. We live in the same apartment building. My sister, my mother and I, we're all in this marvelous Mrs. Maisel setup. We are very yeah. close. I am like very candid in the book about my mother and the things that like, she makes the best latkes. And, and we would, we had, we have such a great relationship, but also I'm very candid about like, her shortcomings in the kitchen. She won't let me live it down. She every day this week, she's just been nonstop. I can't believe you wrote that I'm not Julia. I could be Julia Child. You said I'm no Julia Child. 
and and so so the guilt is coming, but it's all of love. Sure, yeah, you didn't let her do a fine edit before it went. Oh to no, press. no 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 no. <laughs> um, and I think if anybody questions if this book is is a is a presentation of you and how you cook, there's a photo right at the very beginning that is just marvelous. I think you described it later in the book as a campy holla picture day sort of scene. It feels yeah. sort of very nineties, right? There's like lasers. You're, yeah. I, are you thinking you're in a turtleneck maybe? Oh yeah. I'm in a turtleneck. Okay. Turtleneck. That's what I, I thought. Um, how did you decide to do a photo shoot like that and to have that sort of be the introduction of you as a person in this book? Yeah. So for the photo shoot, it was a complete shit show. To really to put it lightly, because I had kind of, I was told that I could expect like 75 photos. I have a, like just over a hundred recipes and I was not about to have 25 recipes without photos. So I kind of actually went behind the backs of my, of the publisher and went to my photographer who was a friend and I was, and my stylist. And I, I was like, listen, I'll be there crack of dawn to the middle of the night, having everything prepped and ready. We're going to be shooting every recipe plus step-by-step kind of photos for challah, babka, rugala. And I want menu shots for all of the high holidays. And we made it happen. We got it all done. I, it was, I was completely shocked. I was, my back literally could have snapped in half at the end of it. I was just so dead. But the other aspect of that was that it was at the very beginning of the pandemic, like very, very beginning. So our last day of shooting was when New York shut down. So we just made it. We just made it. And because I was so focused on just getting all the food shot while the world is crumbling around me. And and it was crazy because I cut, I cut, we cut all of our assistants. We closed it off. So it was just the four of us in this huge space to make sure that everything like that there nothing could go awry. And one of the things that we never got to do was a was a an author photo because I was so focused on getting all the food done. And I had this vision for a while of, of this campy, it was inspired by the Jonas Brothers had this photo shoot in Paper Magazine, and they did it kind of like old school uh, yearbook photo where it, it, it's, it's like they're looking off and then there's another one in, in like uh, kind of opaque. And I just was like, I need, I want to do this. I, and I think it's Nick Jonas holding a ferret. And I was like, I want to do that, but with Kala. And this was the middle of the summer. This is already into the pandemic now. It's not like that's something that could happen. I'm in Florida with my in-laws because we had spent a huge chunk of the summer. Just We just moved in with my, my husband's parents and his sister was there and her girlfriend is a, like knows how to take photos. Um, and I was like, listen, I'm ordering some turtlenecks and this is what we're going to do. And I baked a challah and we hung up a sheet and we did this photo shoot that she then edited with the, the laser beam backgrounds. And I loved it. And I go to my editor and I said, this is my author photo. And she responds and she goes, uh, I don't think so. And I said, no, 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 no. This is my author photo. I give a whole list of reasons of why this book could not go on without this photo dictating the introduction, me, and the tone for the rest of the book. And they said, yes. And I, I mean, it, I'm telling you, there is no world in which this photo would not be the first thing you see. 
We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Jake Cohen. Don't go anywhere. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine. This week, you'll find a chance to win your own copy of Jewish, as well as two featured recipes from the book, the shakshuka a la vodka and chewy Iraqi almond cookies. Each week, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks, from Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat, Carla Hall, and today's guest, Jake Cohen. Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. We also just launched our new Salt and Spine Cookbook Club. Cook along with our featured author every month, and then join us for a virtual dinner party with that author. In April, our featured author is today's guest, Jake Cohen. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content, starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. And now back to our conversation with Jake Cohen, author of Jewish. I know you're also big on TikTok, if we could use that phrase, big on TikTok, right? Uh, I yeah. think you have almost a little, li- little bit of clout. I got a little bit <laughs> a little of clout. Bit of clout. The, yeah. That's the, the appropriate terminology. Yeah, um, I like that. And and a lot of the recipes you, you, you develop... Um, some in your book, but also just generally sort of are tied to things that we find trendy in because we find ourselves in these trendy moments. One thing that I'm thinking of in particular is you have an everything bagel galette in the book that looks amazing. And we went through this period, right, where just like everything bagel seasoning was just everywhere. Maybe we're still kind of in that period because I think yeah. Jenny, Jenny's, Jenny's just yeah, had this ice cream. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah, which I don't, have you tried it? I haven't tried it. Oh yeah, I have it in my freezer. It's great. Oh, you it's funny. It, it's I'm great. literally, oh yeah, yeah, literally. I mean, by the time this comes out, I will have already done it, but I'm going to be on Good Morning America in a few days, literally showing people how to make their own everything bagel seasoning. <laughs> like, because oh, everyone awesome. is okay. just now in this moment. And I don't, I, I mean, I think this is a, a perfect kind of way to talk about cultural diffusion and how things work and how things go but yeah it's it's as simple the fact of of, it's a delicious thing that is rooted in new york and bagel culture and therefore jew culture and it's going mainstream and you have to remember that for most people across the country that's not a thing that they will ever know so it's very exciting and i think that's amazing i i think too often this game of, of of culinary telephone happens and you have issues with with people remembering like where these foods where these dishes where these ideas actually come from a lot of them are rooted and it's not just this in terms of of, of everything bagel seasoning but also just like any dish that kind of trickles down to to become mainstream oftentimes is rooted in someone's culture and it's just not getting the credit it deserves that's a separate conversation Trendy food aside, I make food that I like that is good um, on social media. I like I do the whole thing. I did a version of the the feta pasta that went viral. I wasn't going to do uh-huh. it. It, it. I didn't really have any interest in baking feta for pasta at least. So literally, I did a version with goat cheese, which I found much better. Um, and I opened up the video saying "f that feta pasta" because because I, I I'm not one that's just I'm not a sheep. I don't need to go around and. and Nobody watches my video. Guess what? I don't care. This is what I'm serving for dinner. If you like it or not, like this is it. Um, but there's some things that I really love that just happen to be trending. I did that yeah. tortilla hack with the thing. Loved it. Big fan. Did you? Okay, I haven't tried that one. But I know people are really into the tortilla hack. 
That's so interesting because I think a lot of your recipes um, sort of blend different flavors and concepts. And some of them we see pretty clearly in your cookbook here. Like you have a shakshuka, which uses a vodka sauce as the base. You have yeah. some modern kugels. You have um, different, like your sort of takes on tadigs and tashins. You have like a buffalo chicken tashin, a sweet potato tadig. How do you sort of think about bringing together these different tastes and developing recipes in the really unique way that I think you do it? I think I am just following in the footsteps of everyone who's come before me. You think of okay. Jewish food and it's, it is an evolution. Jewish food is constantly evolving because of the way that Jews have had to move and travel. And the way that my mother-in-law cooks is influenced by the fact that Jews were kicked out of Iraq in 1950 and she grew up in Iran. So she makes a lot of Persian dishes with Iraqi ingredients and a lot of Iraqi d dishes with Persian ingredients. She spent some time living in Turkey. So she makes these Turkish dolma there in the book, but she flavors it with tamarind, which is an ingredient that's so popular in the Iraqi Jewish community because of their role with the spice trade with India. These are all stories of foods that are technically not traditional, but become traditional based on the movement of Jewish communities. Guess what? Jews are in America now. There are so many ways that we have seen that influence in, in Jewish culture. You see Jewish communities and in Canada who will use maple syrup in their challah instead of honey to sweeten it. You will see, I think, of, of Patty Hinnich, who does incredible recipes that blend Jewish Ashkenazi foods with the ingredients and flavors of Mexico, where she's from. Right. There's so many examples of that. Guess what? I'm living in New York. I am putting in my spin based on how I cook for my family and things that I enjoy. The idea is, is like sweet potato tadik. Potato tadik is so common. Everyone loves it. My husband loves it. I was like, why don't we try sweet potato? Everyone right. who sees that, it's like, oh my God. It, 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 it's, it's something that was just inconceivable. They're like, that's so so smart. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's just, I'm coming as an outsider. So I was able to be like, why don't we do this? In the same way that Alex is able to help me so often with Ashkenazi foods and rethinking them and creating mashups or flavors where he'll try something because he's never had it before. And you'll be able to say like, why don't you do this? And I'll just yeah. be like, yeah, I, I should do that because that's genius. I just couldn't think that clearly because I only know it as this one way and we get so stuck in our heads. Like this is just the way it is because it's the way it is. Sure. And sometimes we can learn some great things from that process too, right? Like you have a pasta tadig in the book, which um, Samin Nostra has also done her version of a pasta tadig. I haven't made yours, but I've made hers and like pasta is amazing to begin with, but like then you make a pasta tadig and it just like brings it to a whole nother level. So I think sometimes that exploration and that work that you do in bringing those flavors together can really end up with some incredible recipes as we see. I want to bring in a phrase that you use for, you use in the cookbook that is maybe not something you've coined, but something that I love. And it's WWIGD, which of course stands for What Would Ina Garten Do? Um, yeah. And you write that you're structuring your life around becoming the gay Ina with Alex as your Jeffrey. Um, yeah. So I, I thought that was just a wonderful transition into a topic we like to talk with all of our guests about, which is we're a show on cookbooks. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about authors or, or particular books even that have been really important or influential to you 
clearly Ina. Um, maybe you Ina. elaborate there and tell us. Yeah. Um, I've actually never spoken of, th- of this particular thing in public other than with some close friends and family. So okay. you, you do have the real exclusive, but oh, exciting, I love right? Ina. I love Ina so much. And a few months ago, she followed me for a full 24 hours before unfollowing me. And what? it was, it was the most magical day of my life. I am, there's no ill will. There's no, I, I still love her. It's all of that. But I, I think that what she has done is the dream in the sense of it's focused on cooking for others. The whole aspect of cooking for Jeffrey to me is, is so genius because of the fact that it, it's just like, it's her, it's her marriage, it's her life, it, it's her relationship. It, it's something about the connections that we make over food. And I've always loved that. I've always loved her approach that everything can be easy. Like nothing has to be stressful. What I want to do in this book is really empower people to cook for others and feel like they can do anything because they can, like you can do anything you put your mind to. If you want to make a challah and you've never made it before, it's going to be fine. Like, yeah, it might not be perfect, but it's a journey. And, and I, I think that there's beauty in, in, in that journey in terms of other authors. I think Anyone that follows that same concept of telling stories, I adore Adina Sussman, what she's done in Sababa and the way of, of really highlighting people's stories of, of, of people in the Shook and, and all of those kind of first person experience she's had as the, this kind of new resident of Israel. Um, I adore Olya Hercules. She is not only a dear friend, but I think her as a cookbook author working to preserve the culture she grew up with in of Ukrainian food and then really diving into to the specifics of, of regional Ukrainian food, kind of expanding in, in her, her second book to also focus on, on Georgian food, Azerbaijan. It's all things that I love and are adjacent to, to pretty much like a crossover of the Ashkenazi food I grew up in, I grew up with, and the Persian food my husband grew up with, because this is a region of the world that literally is in between both of them. Uh-huh. So I've always found that super, super incredible. Um, other authors, I mean, I've been a huge fan of David Leibowitz for forever. I've been lucky enough to now be able to call him a friend and someone who I've hosted for Shabbat. And I, I just think that everyone's going to have their their own favorites because it's about who you can open and see yourself. And those are just some names of cookbook authors that I see myself in when I read their books and everyone's going to be different. And I think that is really amazing and special. Yeah, that's great. Do we need to launch like a campaign to get Ina to follow you again? I feel like that was such an incredible thing. And then it was so short lived. <laughs> it happened, which means like, at yeah. it, 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 which means she knows who I am. Like right. that's, that's, that's it. Like I'm on, I'm on, I'm in her headspace somewhere, even if it's in the back, even if it's, it was an act, maybe it was an accident for all I know. Like, <laughs> I just know that like, there is this kind of constant deification of celebrity. Uh, and it happens in the food world too. And I'm guilty of that, especially with Ina. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, I think there's something really important in just remembering that everyone's just a person. Everyone is human. Everyone is looking to cook and provide sustenance for themselves and for others. I have been very lucky to create relationships with a lot of people that used to be, I guess, in that celebrity category and now are just people that I know. Um, And I think that that food is, is that kind of ultimate connector that, that levels everyone off. 
doesn't matter yeah. how famous you are. If you want to learn how to cook, you are going to Instagram, you're following those accounts, you're buying cookbooks, you are connecting with the people that know that in the same way that I follow so many other people in categories that I know nothing about. And that's something really exciting. And I'm really honored to be part of this community of authors. Well, we always end with a little game. So sort of on that note, in terms of following people who can teach you how to cook and following people you admire, you have a lot of TikTok followers. So I thought we would play a little bit of a TikTok themed game, although it's pretty loosely TikTok themed. Okay. Um, so we have these four decks of cards here that all have ingredients on them. So we have a stack of vegetables, self-explanatory. We have proteins, also self-explanatory. We have flavors, which are like herbs, spices, flavoring agents. And then we have the large stack of secret ingredients, which are sort of, they can be more obscure ingredients or it can just be kind of random to some extent. So I thought we would get a little insight into how you might approach recipe development and content creation by saying maybe we play two rounds. It's kind of like a version of Chopped, right? You get a a set of ingredients and you've got your TikTok um, loaded on your phone and you're going to make a TikTok with a recipe. How would you bring these ingredients together? Sounds good. All right. Do you want to do one of each? Yeah, let's do it. Sound good. Okay. So we'll start with a vegetable. I actually didn't shuffle these. So we'll pull from the middle. Okay. We have cabbage. Love it. We have a protein, which is shrimp. Okay. Flavor that we have is vanilla. Okay. And our secret ingredient is rice cakes. Oh, interesting. Um, right. Yeah, this is actually, this is, that one's pretty easy. This one would be very much so a like uh, summer snack. Oh, I would probably take the cabbage, make it mm. into like a quick slaw. I actually really love using vanilla in savory recipes, just a little bit, adding like floral qualities in the same way that you would add like in so many Middle Eastern dishes, you have add rose water to savory dishes. So it would be like a super spicy vinaigrette with a splash of vanilla in. Yeah. Why not? And then we'll sear up some shrimp and throw it all on a rice cake. I love that. That that sounds awesome. Okay, let's do one more. That that came so easily to you. I'm like, we got to challenge you a bit here. Okay, so we have a carrot or carrots. Love carrots. Protein. Uh, we have tofu. Okay. Flavor is mustard, which okay could be that looks like not dried, but you know could be dry, could be not. Okay. Uh, any kind of mustard and secret ingredient is smoked salmon. So okay. smoked salmon, tofu, carrot, and mustard. Ugh. Okay, that's not as that's not as fun. Um, yeah. So for this one, we would definitely be making the tofu. Like we'd marinate the tofu in honey mustard, and we would get okay. it super super crispy in a pan. And then we would um, slice the carrots super thin, almost like the smoked salmon, but we would pickle them. Okay. So the honey mustard, roasted tofu, pickled carrots, and smoked salmon, and we turn it into a sandwich, probably on just like toasted baguette. Yeah, I like it. That sounds delicious. Awesome. Well, that was great. You that came so easily to you. <laughs> that was that was so fun to watch. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine, Jake. It was great to talk to you. My pleasure. 
And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from Jake Cohen's Jewish. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes and join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.